I'm Cindy Lauper. My psoriasis was all over, even on my scalp, which may mean four times the risk for psoriatic arthritis. But Cosentix works on both. Cosentix secukinumab is prescribed for adults with moderate to severe plaque psoriasis 300 milligram dose and adults with active psoriatic arthritis 150 milligram dose. Don't use if you're allergic to Cosentix. Before starting, get checked for TB. Serious allergic reactions, severe skin reactions that look like eczema, and an increased risk of infections, some fatal, have occurred. Cosentix may lower ability to fight infections, so tell your doctor if you have an infection or symptoms like fevers, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough, had a vaccine or plan to, or if IBD symptoms develop or worsen. Learn more at Cosentix.com or one 844-COSENTIX. Ask your doctor about Cosentix. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. It's Friday, July 17th, 2015, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new, in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds, or inquiringshow.tumblr.com, and on Twitter at inquiringshow, and Facebook at slash inquiringmindspodcast. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. This episode is sponsored by The Great Courses. The Great Courses brings the world's greatest professors to your fingertips. With over 500 courses on science, history, philosophy, fine arts, and more, The Great Courses are available on digital download and streaming, or DVD and CD. And for a limited time only, The Great Courses is giving our listeners an offer of 80% off the original price of my own course called 12 Essential Scientific Concepts. So go to thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds to find out more. That's thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds. And this episode is sponsored by SmartThings. You have a smartphone. What about a smart home? SmartThings has created a super easy way to control, automate, and secure every aspect of your home. And you don't have to be a tech genius to install it and use it. Light locks thermostat security. With SmartThings, it's all connected through a single app on your phone. To get 10% off your choice of either their home security, energy saver, or water detection kits, go to smartthings.com minds. Once again, that's smartthings.com slash minds. And this week's episode is sponsored by harrys.com. Harry's is less than two years old and is already disrupting the shaving industry, offering a better shaving experience at better value than giants like Schick and Gillette. And Harry's will give first-time customers $5 off if you go to harrys.com and use coupon code inquiringminds. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S dot com, coupon code inquiringminds. Those living in the Bay Area have probably heard the name Lawrence. That name is on expressways, roads, and most notably on Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory and Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. Named for Ernest Lawrence, the pioneer of the cyclotron up at LBL and one of the leading physicists of his time working on numerous projects leading into the Manhattan Project. This week, we talked to Michael Hiltzik, who wrote a story on Lawrence's life with an emphasis on how Lawrence really is the father of the big science movement. And by big science, we mean those 
gigantic projects that bring into interdisciplinary researchers together and spend millions upon billions of dollars and how that revolutionized the relationship between science, industry, the military, and led to the birth of the military industrial complex. Uh, Michael is out with a new book entitled Big Science, Ernest Lawrence, the Cyclotron, and the Birth of the Military Industrial Complex. And we had a ranging interview talking about the physics that went into all of this effort, leading to some of the moral quandaries around the Manhattan Project and how that projects into modern science. That'll be our interview for this week. But first, Indre, did anything catch your eye in the news? It certainly did, although it first caught my eye on Twitter. So from one of our listeners, Walter Cardozo, here's a shout out. I hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly. He noted that there is a course offered at the University of Toronto, which is my own alma mater, that essentially is on homeopathy and has an anti-vaccine bent. So, of course, this caught my eye. You know, I'm very proud of the university that I went that I got my bachelor's degree from. And I was, you know, pretty surprised that they would be promoting um, pseudoscience. So I delved a little bit more deeply. And it turns out that indeed, in the Department of Anthropology at the University of Toronto Scarborough campus, so the University of Toronto actually has three campuses, one downtown St. George, um, one in Scarborough, one in Mississauga, I went to the St. George campus. And if you're from U of T, these things are important. <laughs> um, elsewhere in the world, they're completely unimportant. Um, but in any case, there is a health studies program at U of T Scarborough, and it's run by the Department of Anthropology. And there, there was a sessional instructor. So now all these caveats are here to say this is not a tenured professor, you know, in the department of, you know, in, in the medical school at U of T and so forth. But in, instead, this sessional instructor is also happens to be the wife of the dean of that particular campus. Uh, so of course, the Twitter sphere and the media picked this story up and claimed that this is really problematic. Um, the course is uh, uh, not actually going to be offered in the coming sessions. In fact, it's not listed on the calendar in any time in the future. Um, so the idea that U of T, you know, is okaying and, and starting to teach students anti-vaccine propaganda is simply not true. Um, but it was taught for, I think, one or two sessions. And the goal of the course was actually to provide students who are taking health studies um, with an alternative view to alternative medicine. Um, and I guess what what the the university reviews say and sort of what what the truth of the matter, I think, really is, is that you know, there are, these are students who are really, um, have a very biomedical bent to their education. Uh, they're senior students. And this is a course that is supposed to be kind of, you know, a, a very small seminar limited to 30 students. And is supposed to sort of make people think more critically about some of the things they read. So, you know, you could argue, well, at a university, they shouldn't be in, in, in the syllabus, which is posted online. You can find it. And one, you know, some of the readings do are you involve. Defend, are you defending this? No, wait, wait, hold, hang on a minute. <laughs> you know, they, they do involve watching videos of Andrew Wakefield, right? Whom we know is, is, um, you know, has, 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 his research has, I don't even know how to say this <laughs> correctly, but essentially, uh, the journals to which he has published his research have retracted uh, those studies that show uh, or that purported to show a link between autism and vaccines. Um, but here's my question to you and to our listeners. Let's say that, in fact, this course really was providing these students with uh, or forcing them to read um, writings that that sh that were saying that there was a link between autism and vaccines. 
Should we not allow this course to be taught at university? This is a college course. I don't actually have a problem with it. This is in core curriculum for science students. It's one of those like kind of afternoon elective classes, just like they have a class on Hogwarts University at Berkeley right now. I mean, there's all sorts of ridiculous classes. You're supposed to be a critical thinker at this stage in your career and not take uh, any item that you come to as gospel. And, and not so, only, yeah, I am, I almost wonder if students who are taking a health studies degree actually should be required to read some of these kinds of writings, um, in order for them to be able to distinguish what is fact from fiction. You know, can they actually tell the difference between a really good study and a study, you know, that is not well designed, that has a lot of flaws, that is really problematic? And how are they supposed to be able to tell the difference if they don't actually read any of these flawed studies to begin with? I think you're actually on to something. I never had a journal club as an undergraduate. And I think that sort of critical analysis of papers, actually a really useful skill if you're really going to go into the sciences later. That being said, this is really dumb. And the most offensive thing in this is there was some part of the syllabus that indicated they were going, she was going to use quantum mechanics and apply that to health. Uh, uh, quantum physics. Yes. Oh, <laughs> no, I mean, Excuse so, me. so, so, Certainly, uh, you know, this is not a person who is likely to get a, you know, a, a tenured position at the University of Toronto because she would have to prove to her colleagues that her research and, you know, is, is rigorous and so forth. And, you know, there, there are a lot of questionable things in the syllabus, but I don't think that it should be banned from being taught. Um, you know, I don't think that she should be hired as a full professor at the University of Toronto, uh, unless, you know, she has other, um, I guess, other qualifications. Um, but I don't think that it's a problem to talk about this. I think students should be exposed to this, especially students who are studying health uh, and, and are in the health-related field. And so I'm, you know, still going to stand behind my alma mater. <laughs> I have nothing <laughs> You're just shaking your head. You have nothing to say. I have no, nothing <laughs> All right. Well, let's move on. So, Kishore, what drew your attention this week? So if you look in our fridges, I'm sure you'll find one common thing, milk, because we both have kids and, you know, we all hear milk makes your bones strong, loads of vitamin D, drink two to three glasses a day, blah, blah, blah. But this is kind of a weird phenomenon, the idea of adults drinking milk that actually didn't really take root till the earliest, early 20th century. And we don't really see any other mammals as adults drink milk. So I saw a recent piece by Veronica Greenwood, um, who wrote an interesting history of the advent of us drinking milk as adults uh, in a recent BBC.com piece. And she talks about how butter and cheese have been around for centuries because it was a way of preserving milk, but we didn't drink milk because there was bacterial problems with it until pasteurization came along. But just because pasteurization came along doesn't mean automatically adults started drinking milk. What happened was, is that there was a combination of a couple movements together in conjunction with some scientific evidence uh, at the time that led people to drink milk. So there is, at that time, there was an advent of something called the temperance movement. Can you even guess what that is? <laughs> um, makes us all chill out a little bit more. Is that right? It's kind of close. They actually wanted people to stop drinking as much beer and spirits. So they encouraged them to drink something pure. And what's more pure than a nice white glass of milk? Uh, and at that time, scientists were extolling the virtues because they had a glass of liquid that had fat, carbohydrates, and protein in it all at the same time. And then farmers had an excess of milk. 
because of industry and agricultural practices. At the time, they're actually using milk to produce plastic. Uh, <laughs> wow. Yeah, so they had all this excess. And those three forces combined together to introduce a campaign to encourage people to drink milk. Milk, it does your body good. Yeah, except it doesn't. So here's some studies. So in 2014, a JAMA pediatric study studied 100,000 men and women over a period of 20 years to see if milk consumption actually led to a decrease in hip fractures later in life. It doesn't. Lancet study on vitamin D fortification on bone density, mostly statistically insignificant in terms of an impact. There's no clear evidence that milk is bad for you either. But there's really not any clear medical evidence that, especially for adults, that milk is any good. So, but wait a minute. We do know that calcium is good, right? Or are those, these studies suggesting that that's not the case? It's suggesting that what, they're, uh, what the message is, that it makes your bones stronger, doesn't hold up to the evidence. We know that the vitamins in it are, are good, but you can get those from other sources, leafy green vegetables, for, for example. So they're not seeing the, the core messages and that drinking two to three glasses a day has any benefit for adults. So does this mean that my husband's right and we should be eating more kale and drinking less milk and fewer cookies? I think the fact that uh, you would even suggest not having cookies with milk is uh, is crazy. I think milk in moderation is fine. There's no deleterious effects as far as they find outside of like if you as long as you're within moderation. But what I think is fascinating is we've grown up on messages of got milk uh, and milk does a body good, and none of those hold scientific weight anymore. Well, there's also this issue, of course, of lactose intolerance that seems to be on the rise, but that's a topic for, I think, an entirely different show, because I just recently read a report showing that perhaps uh, lactose intolerance is, an, is a sign that we are still evolving. I mean, of course, we're still evolving, but this might be one way to study the evolution of humans, which is kind of interesting. On that hopeful note of evolution and maybe gassy note of lactose intolerance, let's take a short break and we'll be back with my interview with Michael Hiltzik. This episode of Inquiring Minds is sponsored by The Great Courses. For a limited time, The Great Courses is giving our listeners a special offer of up to 80% off my 24 lecture series called 12 Essential Scientific Concepts. That's two concepts per, no, sorry, that's two lectures per concept. Yep, I can do math too. Choosing the 12 most important or fundamental ideas in science was not an easy task, but it was something that I really enjoyed. I got to write about topics as diverse as string theory and DNA, thermodynamics, and emergence. And in putting together this course, I wanted to provide a resource for people who haven't thought deeply about science since high school or who are skeptical that science can even be interesting. I wanted to show how science plays a role in virtually every aspect of our lives and that what fuels scientists is curiosity and a reverence for the wonders of the universe and our place in it. So if there's someone you know who just doesn't get your love of science or if it's been a while since you've updated your basic knowledge, this course is designed to fill those gaps. This special offer of 80% off 12 essential scientific concepts is only valid for a limited time. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds to find out more about this special offer or any of the 500 other series offered by The Great Courses. That's thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds. And this episode is sponsored by SmartThings. 
You have a smartphone. What about a smart home? SmartThings has created a super easy way to control, automate, and secure every aspect of your home, and you don't have to be a tech genius to install it and use it. That's why they were named one of the top 10 coolest gadgets of the year by Time Magazine. SmartThings instantly turns your normal home into a smart home. Lights, locks, thermostats, security. With SmartThings, it's all connected through a single app that works on iPhone, Android, and Windows phones. Sometimes coming home can be a really pleasant experience, but imagine how much more pleasant it could be if before you even get to your house, you could turn on some music, get the lighting right, etc. Just create the perfect atmosphere for coming home. Well, SmartThings can help you do just that with their home automation software. Right now, SmartThings is offering its three most popular kits at a discount for our listeners. Inquiring Minds listeners get 10% off either the home security, energy saver, or water detection kit when you go to smartthings.com slash minds. It's the perfect way to get started with a smart home. For 10% off and free domestic shipping, go to smartthings.com slash minds. That's smartthings.com slash minds. And this episode is sponsored by Harry's.com. Harry's is less than two years old and is already disrupting the shaving industry, offering a better shaving experience at better value than giants like Schick and Gillette. Overpaying for drugstore razor blades is a bad habit that you should leave behind. So make the smart switch to Harry's. Harry's high-quality German-engineered blades are crafted for sharpness and precision. They're half the price of big-name drugstore brands, and they ship them for free straight to your door. I have to admit that my husband and I sometimes argue about who gets to use the razor. But thanks to Harry's, now we both have our own problem-solved marriage is back to being wonderful. Their starter set is just 15 bucks. That includes the razor, three blades, and your choice of Harry's shave cream or foaming shave gel. Personally, I like the gel because it feels very cool going on your skin. But as an added bonus, Harry's will give first-time customers $5 off if you use our coupon code Minds. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S dot com, coupon code inquiringminds. Michael Hiltzik, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Well, thank you for having me. You've said big science is the industrialization of science, a trend that has largely continued to today. Can you talk about what big science is? Well, at its most fundamental level, it, it is its capital-intensive science that that involves teams of researchers, tens, hundreds, sometimes thousands uh, of, of scientists, inter, interdisciplinary teams uh, that take on uh, the, the big issues of the natural world today. And uh, uh, it, it really is sort of, it's, it's the paradigm that fits the needs most closely to, to investigate uh, uh, cosmic distances and infinitesimal distances to learn what we still need to know about the natural world. And you say capital intensive. We should contextualize what capital intensive means in this in this day and age. We're talking about how much money. Well, let's j- take for example the Large Hadron Collider, uh, the the European accelerator uh, that's buried in a seventeen mile tunnel under the French and Swiss. Countryside, the Large Hadron Collider is the latest manifestation of the machine that Ernest Lawrence invented in 1929 at Berkeley. Uh, his, uh, his first cyclotron costs about $100 in materials. The Large Hadron Collider costs $9 billion to build. So that's, that's a large version, but that, that should give you a, 
a sense of the scale, at least as an order of magnitude. I'm no math wizard, but I'm guessing inflation adjusting a hundred dollars from 1929 still does not equal it, nine billion. No, it would not get you to nine billion dollars. It's it's one way or another. It's it's an exponential growth in the cost of doing this sort of science. So let's track back to 1929 and Ernest Lawrence. He's the the star of your book, Big Science. And uh, I went to, I did my undergrad at Berkeley. Lawrence's name is all over Berkeley, all over the San Francisco Bay Area, and, and through his imprint is throughout science. But he's not really that famous of a figure uh, compared to some of his other physicists' contemporaries. Can you just give us a little background on who Ernest Lawrence was and how he played a role in this big science movement? Sure, you, you're right in uh, in saying that he's not famous today or not certainly not as famous as some of his contemporaries like J. Robert Oppenheimer. Uh, although, as you said, here in the Bay Area, we have the Lawrence Berkeley Lab, the Lawrence Livermore Lab, which I think a lot of people think was named after somebody named Lawrence Livermore. But no, it was founded by Ernest Lawrence while he was alive and he lived from 1901 to 1958. He was the most famous American-born scientist in the country. He had made it onto the cover of Time magazine at a fairly uh, young age. He was always being quoted by newspapers and asked to give talks on radio. In 1939, he won the Nobel Prize for the cyclotron. So he was uh, very well known. uh, And part of what made him famous or kept him in the public eye was that he was uh, a very unassuming individual. He was born in South Dakota. He carried that Midwestern uh, modesty with him all his life, uh, even despite his great fame and, and his accomplishments. And he invented the first really efficient and effective atom smasher, and then carried that invention to numerous generations, made sure that the technology spread to other universities in the United States and overseas uh, very selflessly. Uh, and uh, and that's what really put him at the center of physics, experimental physics in the U.S. and really the world for three decades. So let's talk about that cyclotron, uh, cyclotron which, a version of which is still, you know, in the Oakland Hills, to, in the Berkeley Hills today. What was it about the cyclotron that was such a big leap forward, first from the physics standpoint, and then we'll get into why it was such a leap forward for science as a field? Well, at the time that it was invented, uh, physics, I think you could say, had reached a crossroads or maybe even a dead end. Uh, The the previous generation of physicists, the Ernest Rutherfords, the Marie Curies, had uh, just accomplished an amazing amount of discovery using natural tools. They, They would husband thimblefuls of radium, and in Marie Curie's case, radium and polonium, and they would use though that that natural mineral uh the emissions of alpha and beta rays from them to bombard their their uh their atomic targets they discovered uh Rutherford discovered the actual um uh, configuration of the of the atom uh his uh, associates discovered the neutron the curies uh, obviously discovered uh, artificial radio radioactivity um and these were great achievements, but by the end of the 1920s, it was clear that that the energies produced by these emissions from natural sources had reached their, their limit. They weren't powerful enough to take physics further, and physicists really were hungering 
for a way to get higher energies to, to bombard their targets. In fact, it was Rutherford who said, I want to see 10 million volts, uh, a 10 million volt apparatus that can fit in a modest room. Um, and physicists all over the world were were taking up that challenge and nobody was able to do it until Lawrence had a brainstorm uh, at Berkeley in 1929 of the way to do that. And, and his discovery proved to be unimaginably flexible and effective. So branching out from that, because this essentially gave birth to the linear accelerators we see today, the particle accelerators of, of all kinds. But what I found fascinating was um, was sort of twofold, the money, which we'll get to in a second, but also how the cyclotron opened up doors for other fields as much as it did for physics. Like I think we can understand how inventing a particle accelerator dramatically shifted the landscape of physics. But later on, he started bringing in interdisciplinary teams, as you mentioned off the top, chemists, biologists, to also use this technology in some way. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, one of the things I think that made Lawrence such an effective manager of science, and that really was the key to his developing from his great accelerator, a paradigm of science, is that he was very sensitive to what his patrons were looking for. Um, he it, to, to build uh, uh, his continued uh, bigger generations of cyclotrons, he needed much more money than than a single source could provide. He, he, early on, he outstripped the University of California's ability to fund his, uh, his experiments. Uh, so he went out and he started, uh, uh, looking for foundation grants, um, and ultimately government and industry. And, uh, there was a period, for example, when it was very hard to find foundation grants for physics. It simply had, um, you know, had lost its cachet, at least for a period of time. But what Lawrence discovered is that there was gobs of money available for experimentation in medicine. And uh, I, I don't want to say he took a cynical view of this, but he understood that if he wanted money, he really needed to build up the applications of the cyclotron for biology and medical science. And he set his uh, uh, his team to looking for isotopes of the organic uh, uh, elements, oxygen, carbon, nitrogen, uh, long-lived isotopes that were really being sought at the time because they would be so useful in medicine. And the way to do this was to, to use the cyclotron. And he did that. Um, you know, he developed the, the cyclotron helped find a radio sodium, radio phosphorus, which had uh, clear applications in medicine. Uh, Lawrence's lab discovered carbon-14, which had been sought for 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 years, which we has multiple uses, including carbon dating um, and so on. So he, he understood what his patrons' goals were. And, and I think his genius was in seeing how the cyclotron could fulfill those goals, and then the money would come in, and he would use use the funds not only to to do what his patrons wanted, but what he thought science required. As much as this book and the story of Lawrence is about his scientific achievements and its implications to today, I really found this book to be as much about money uh, as anything else. And uh, you you paint this picture of the university 
not being able to fund his research early on and him dissolving those those boundaries, first with foundations and then on through to industry, uh, that dissolution was not an easy process. You agree? Well, it certainly uh, changed the relationship between the the research facilities at a big research university and the university itself. It's sort of a cliche, but the the chairman of the physics department throughout most of Lawrence's career, in fact, the man who uh, who recruited him to Berkeley, Raymond Burge, said at one point um, that uh, he doesn't know what's going on at the radiation lab, but he's happy it's there. And and I think Bob Sproul, who was the president of Berkeley uh, throughout most of this time and another great patron of Lawrence, said, uh, in a sense, uh, we're not a university that's got the rad lab in it. It's a rad lab that's got a university Around it now, I think throughout most of Lawrence's life, there there wasn't much downside to that. But but certainly, um, as big science has developed, uh, there ha- there has been a change in the way uh, professors and uni- and department heads and uh, and big researchers, um, uh, you know, the the principal investigators, how they go about their business, um, what their relationship is with their university. And with their their funding donors, um, that we probably we probably do need to think more about. And some people have been thinking about that since the 1960s, but I don't think we've ever really given these phenomena the attention that they deserve. What's fascinating? I work at a university. I work at the University of California in San Francisco. This is a daily conversation. This sort of struggle that the scientist feels on funding their work and the sources of funding available. Uh, continues to this day. And in some sense, that's a legacy of of Lawrence's initial work. Uh, but let's continue on because the next step is he really started to open up dollars from the government itself, which was, I, I was sort of astounded to to know. It makes common sense. But in the 30s, there wasn't really money available from the government in any significant capacity to fund research. No, I think if you trace the relationship of the government or, or the role of the government as a funder of research, uh, it began to build slowly during the 1930s, but uh, quite obviously it was World War II that jumped it up to a higher level. And I think what's significant about Lawrence's role is that, first of all, he understood early on that the government was going to be an important patron, and he cultivated that relationship. Um, he made cyclotrons available to uh, uh, for government ends uh, fairly early on, um, because they, that's where the money was. Uh, then, of course, he played this crucial role in the Manhattan Project. In fact, he saved it from extinction in 1941. And then the, the, I think a real significant development is that after the war, when everybody, including at first Lawrence himself, thought that the government would drop off sharply as a, a funder of, of basic scientific research, it did not. It maintained its role and continued its role and in, in certain respects uh, uh, intensified its role. And that's something we continue to see. I think this brings up one of the major questions that I left after reading your book, which is how much should the basic research enterprise uh, really intersect with uh, military and security? And it's a question I, it, it didn't seem like you... Uh, there's a clear-cut answer for. Uh, and, and where this came up most interesting to me is a lot of the scientists on the Manhattan Project, and Oppenheimer included, expressed hesitancy 
around the, the implications of the development of the bomb. Uh, whereas Lawrence seemed uh, a little bit more of the poster child for the development of, of those weapons. Uh, it, did that um, a moral quandary come up for you as well? Well, it, it did. And, and I think you've put your finger on a very, very important uh, point. And, and it's a, a theme and a story that I develop at some length in my book because it, it really is in, in many ways the centerpiece of the development of big science. Um, the Manhattan Project validated big science as a paradigm. It showed that that this idea of, first of all, spending an incredible amount of money, uh, bringing in a multidisciplinary uh, team of researchers uh, and a lot of researchers and putting them to work on a shared goal would work. Um, at the beginning of uh, sort of the nuclear age, uh, dating back to the discovery of fission in 1938, it was not at all clear that the explosive capabilities of fission would would really matter. Um, but through the Manhattan Project and and the big science element of it, we discovered that it did. Now, in terms of the moral uh, ambiguity of this work, I, I think what I came around to in the course of doing my research, and, and when I started, I, I had, I think, a, a sort of conventional view that the U.S., um, had really should acknowledge some guilt in having uh, ushered in the nuclear weapon age uh, through its role in um, in dropping the bomb on Japan. Um, but as I as I got deeper into it and I I read um, the thoughts of the scientists who who participated in the Manhattan Project and then afterwards, I think I came to a much more nuanced view that that I think it's it's worth. Uh, everybody thinking about. Um, and you start with the, the atom bomb. Um, when you put your, um, when you put your minds in the position that, uh, leading physicists were in, in 1939, um, 1940, 1941, there were many, uh, emigre physicists from Germany and Austria here in the United States and in the UK. And they were all pretty much convinced that a bomb was feasible to build and that it could be built in time to affect the war and that it must be built because Hitler, uh, the the scientists, the physicists who remained behind in the Third Reich, who all of the the emigres knew very well and had worked with for for many years, uh, our physicists knew that, that they were perfectly capable of building a bomb too. And they were convinced that this was happening in Germany behind uh, behind the lines, and they they were convinced, as as I think was reasonable, that if Hitler got his hands on an atomic bomb, the world, the civilization would hang in the balance. So they were very very uh, interested in pursuing this research and going as far as they could. And Going back to this episode when Lawrence saved the Manhattan Project, uh, we don't need to get too deeply into the moment, which I also describe in the book. But it's clear that the whole point of building of of the Manhattan Project was to build a device that would be used. Uh, If we weren't going to use the the product, there was no point in doing the research during wartime at all because we had a war to win. Um, So I think the the decision to go ahead and develop the atomic bomb and even to use it was defensible in terms of what was known by physicists 
then and the product that they created then. Now, after the event, uh, many of those physicists reconsidered, but right up through Trinity, uh, the Trinity test of the plutonium bomb and the dropping of the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, not even Oppenheimer really expressed much self-doubt about the work he was doing. That, that followed some time later. I, now, think, I think you could argue, though, that post-war, out of the physicists involved in the Manhattan Project, Lawrence capitalized on the available funds as, uh, as much, if not more, than any of the other colleagues. Well, that's absolutely true. In, flat, in, in fact, I, I, Robbie, uh, you know, uh, another great physicist who had worked on the Manhattan Project, started to complain about the University of California uh, monopoly on government uh, research funding. But, um, but I just wanted to continue uh, my point a little bit and, and say that although I think most physicists were in, a, in accord on the necessity of building the bomb, the atom bomb during the war, uh, there were some who said that there are going to be implications of this that we, we need to think about. James Frank, a German emigre, who was working at the metallurgical laboratory of the, of the University of Chicago, two months before Hiroshima was writing that um, scientists are now going to have to take responsibility for the discoveries that they give to society because society is, you know, is going to be inclined to do things with, with these discoveries that, that scientists may not be comfortable with. Um, but I think the real break came with the issue of the super, the, the hydrogen bomb, the fusion bomb, uh, the thermonuclear bomb, which uh, Edward Teller, of course, was a great uh, promoter of, and Ernest Lawrence was probably the single most credible promoter of the hydrogen bomb. And he approached it the same way he had approached the Manhattan Project, which is that this is a matter of national security. And if we don't do it, it's going to be done anyway. So we really need to be in the forefront of this research. And he did expand his own empire by establishing the Livermore Lab as the U.S. government's second hydrogen bomb lab in competition and to augment the work at then going on in, in Los Alamos. But that, that's a much more equivocal legacy because many of Lawrence's uh, colleagues at the time were were very, very skeptical and unhappy about the hydrogen bomb. They thought there was not, it simply didn't have the same rationale. Um, Oppenheimer, Fermi, uh, Arthur, um, uh, Compton, um, all important uh, scientists, Hans Bethe, all important physicists in the Manhattan Project, uh, they regarded the H-bomb essentially as an instrument of genocide. Not even the Pentagon thought that it was a reasonable military weapon. The Joint Chiefs said, this is a psychological weapon, but we can't use it in the military campaign. So, so I think you really need to take a much more equivocal view of the H-bomb than you do of the A-bomb. And, you know, to sum up, I think the A-bomb was a defensible effort. Uh, it was war. Uh, it clearly was going to affect the war, at least as long as Germany was in the war. I think physicists who worked on it didn't have the level of moral qualms that they had over the H-bomb, and I think that's understandable. Do you think the symbiosis that existed between Lawrence and uh, military officials and uh, and the government uh, is representative of some of the um, the the moral 
quandary feelings we have now about that symbiosis between government agents and scientists. I, I think it does. Lawrence had a relationship with, with the military, with his military donors that was much friendlier and more accommodating than uh, many of his colleagues were comfortable with. Um, and it may be because he understood better than they did that the government and particularly the military were going to remain important donors and, and patrons of basic science for many, many years after the war. Uh, he cultivated General Leslie Groves, who was the head of the Manhattan Project at a time when many of his fellow physicists regarded him basically as just a, um, you know, a adult. Um, he wasn't adult, uh, but, but Lawrence made sure he stayed on, on Groves's, um, good side. Um, Lawrence was, um, it, it often more accommodating to the insistence of the military for secrecy than many of his colleagues. Although when the demand for secrecy affected Lawrence and his lab directly, he could push back against it with, with the best of them. But, but he understood, or at least um, said he understood the need for it. Uh, and of course, it's the secrecy, I, I think, um, that revolves around military funding of, of science that is among the most troublesome elements of it. Um, Lawrence was not simply not really as unhappy with that. Um, at least he was willing to live with it to a degree that many of his colleagues, they had to live with it as he did, but they were more unhappy with it. As you mentioned previously, this sort of post-war boom uh, led to sort of almost a golden age of, of science. There was more money flowing into science, particularly in the U.S., than uh, than we'd ever seen before, which blossomed for, for decades. But fast forward to sort of modern times, it feels like we're on the precipice of some of the big science projects breaking down. Do you see it that way as well? Well, I think we, I think some of the big science projects have broken down. Um, the, uh, the example that I point to in my book uh, specifically is the fate of the superconducting super collider which was uh, yet another um, ultimate generation or at least late generation cyclotron when you really boil it down to its essence. Um, that was going to be something in the neighborhood of an $11 billion project. It was a government project. The site had been chosen. It was going to go into a, uh, a field in Texas. Um, but as the uh, the cost estimates rose and as the spending rose, um, you saw a lot more uneasiness about the weight that big science exercised on the federal budget and, in fact, the social budget than you had seen before. Uh, unfortunately for the Collider, uh, right about the time that uh, questions were even being raised by physicists about it, you had a new generation of congressmen come into Congress in a new election, and they, they had all campaigned on the... Uh, principle of smaller government and cutting budgets. And it was probably not a surprise that when they got into office, their first target was a program like the super colliding, the superconducting super collider. And ultimately, Congress canceled the project in 1993 after $2 billion had already been spent on it. And I think physicists even today look at that and say, this really marks the point, if not the end of big science on that scale, but the point at which we need to find uh, much more telling rationales and justifications for the budgets that we're asking 
than we have in the past, that we're not going to get a free, a blank check. Um, now, the end of the superconducting super collider basically left open the field for Europe to build the Large Hadron Collider, which would not have been as big as uh, as our collider, but that also required a consortium of of a dozen countries to, to put together. The yeah, collider. so is this the end of big science or is this the end of national nationalism around big science and we're going to have to see multitudes of countries come together for some of those big science projects to continue well i think it marks an evolutionary step uh, at the very least uh, and we have seen that not only at the large hadron collider but when you look at the this the space program that's a now a collaborative program of the united states and and russia uh, we launch our rockets from baikonur um, in the uh, in the former Soviet Union, um, I, I think one other thing that's happening is that a lot of these great, big, the the most recent big big science projects have come to their natural fruition and their natural end. The Human Genome uh, Project, which was three billion dollars, well, you know, we reached the end of the government role in that, and it's been turned over to private industry for good or ill. Um, uh, we have the, the era of planetary exploration of the, so the solar system. Um, uh, this uh, week that you and I are talking, uh, a day from now, we are going to reach the end of, plan of, of planetary exploration in the solar system because um, the New Horizons spacecraft is going to be passing Pluto, and that's the farthest reaches of, of the solar system. So now we have to think of new programs. Uh, we have to um, we have to reconfigure the programs we have. Uh, we have to do that in the context of all the other demands on uh, social resources and government resources that we face. And um, uh, I, I think one thing we can say is that humankind's thirst for knowledge isn't going to be slaked anytime soon. But its ability or its willingness to pay for the, these sorts of monumental expressions of the search for knowledge is uh, is under stress and strain, and it's going to have to be rethought. Understanding the long storied history of big science, has that changed your personal perspective on how we fund uh, these initiatives now? Well, I think um, I've certainly... Um, have some perspective on the way we fund it in the sense that a lot of the funding for science or scientific research in general has shifted from government to industry. Uh, and I've written a lot about this. Uh, uh, my, uh, I wrote a book some years ago about Xerox Park, uh, the great Palo Alto Research Center that Xerox set up um, to look for the next step in or really to create the, the computer age. And I and I thought Park was sort of the last expression of selfless basic scientific research by industry, even though uh in a sense Xerox was looking for something it could sell. But when industry funds science, it very rarely funds basic science. It, it's funding applied science because it's looking for product. It's looking for technologies that fit into every company is looking for technologies that fit into its core market. Uh, so you are not going to get the level of basic research that you get in academia and certainly not government funded 
research. And, and I think that's troublesome. And I'm certainly not the only uh, person interested in science who's pointed out that, that we are sort of starving our seed corn if we don't fund basic science, but let industry dictate to the university how uh, universities should use the funding that, that industry provides. So reflecting back on Lawrence, who has largely gone unheralded to the wider populace, uh, he really opened up this era of big science that um, may or may not be coming to uh, an end of sorts in this modern age. What, what do you think his enduring legacy will be? Well, I think there are a number of things that his career teaches us. And, and one is something that we, we continue to see, certainly that we're going to see in the, um, uh, in the results that the Large Hadron Collider brings us, not only the discovery of the Higgs boson in 2012, but the, but the next discovery is that it's, it's sure to produce uh, as it restarts, um, as it restarted this year. And that is that every discovery uh, in these, in all of these fields, opens vistas for new research and new inquiries, and that is never going to stop. Um, Lawrence, uh, in building his first cyclotron, and then his next cyclotron, and the one after that, and and one of the qualities that I point out about him in, in my book is that he was all always designing the next one before the last one was finished being built. Uh, because he knew that that the answers he was going to get from the last one uh, were going to require more energies, uh, more more power, um, um, more uh, and lead to more discoveries, and and this would be a never ending cycle. And in a sense, it is a never ending cycle. Um, I think the challenge a challenge that he never really had to face until the very very end of his life and his career when he started to feel some pushback because his work was so expensive and he was, um, and there were competitors for, uh, for the funding that he had for, for so long had to himself. He never really had to deal with that, but, but he was lucky. Um, and, and the work he did leads to these questions and, and to the, the mandate that we consider new ways to fund science and um, and new sources of, of funding. With that mandate, I think we'll call it an interview. Thank you for joining us on Inquiring Minds, Michael Hiltzik. Well, thank you for having me. I was recently talking to a professor at my university who kind of jokingly said his job was chief fundraiser for his lab first, scientist second. Which, in the context of hearing the uh, the story of Ernest Lawrence, is even more applicable. I can't. I kind of can't believe that Ernest Lawrence was the one that sort of shifted that balance. Yeah, I, I had no idea, and that was one of the most interesting parts of your interview and of the book. Um, but it also got me thinking to you know, the, this is not the first time that we've heard this criticism of the way science is funded now. That it's moving more towards industry funded work. Uh, that you know, basic science is the most difficult to get funding for. Um, we talked about this when we interviewed Bill Gifford, who wrote Spring Chicken about aging and how you know it doesn't make a lot 
of sense that most of the money is going towards research on age-related diseases, but not to the basic biology of aging itself. So, you know, we kind of liken it to researching smoking-related cancers without actually establishing a link between smoking and cancer and just stopping smoking. Um, so that really worries me. But it also makes me wonder if really this we are seeing a fundamental shift that maybe will um, hearken a return back to basic science because there are massive companies like Google spending massive amounts of money, you know, probably way more than budgets of certain, uh, you know, government funded um, science agencies on trying to solve the world's problems. Yeah, Google sort of incubated a, a group called Calico Labs, which is actually a basic science research institute. They hired away a number of prominent scientists, Art Levinson, who helped shepherd Genentech for a number of years, Cynthia Kenyon, who's one of the foremost uh, experts in aging with her work on nematodes. So uh, there's no doubt that that shift is coming. But I, I also think it's funny. We I hear a lot of conversations like, oh, we should uh, fund basic science like it used to be funded. And this kind of dispelled some of those kind of notions of of a rosy picture of how science used to be funded. Scientists were the instrument of changing how science was funded. And uh and we should own that as as a group. We like took responsibility to that and led to huge booms in discoveries and benefits to society. Uh so I think that rose-colored picture of how oh back 20 years ago the implication that 20 years ago basic science funding was so different and so much better is just doesn't hold up to the history that we heard today. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I mean, I think that at the time, or at least in Ernest Lawrence's time, there was still a push to show the public about how why this is a useful use of their funding. So, you know, here we are again. And I think that as science has become, you know, in, in some ways more prolific, right, there's so many more publications being, you know, churned out every single day, um, that the job of communicating science to the public is, you know, of critical importance. And so that's why, you know, we have jobs. And in 90 years, they still face the same moral dilemmas that they had uh, about the the relate the closeness of the relationship with the military, uh, the closeness of government agencies, the the role that uh, philanthropy has on affecting uh, research outcomes and research topics. All those topics were true in the 30s, and they're still true now in the in the 2010s. It I don't find that disheartening. I actually find it uh, kind of hopeful that uh, that that struggle still remains. So that in a sense, science hasn't sold out its soul. No, and I and I do think that you know this argument too that you hear a lot that um, science that is funded by industry cannot be unbiased. You know, I, I I'm not sure that that's necessarily true. I think there, of course, is a big you know, implication of, of the company wants to make money. But when I think about what Google is doing with, you know, its various projects, I, you know, I think the agenda there is, yes, ultimately they want to create products that are going to make them more money, but they also want to do something that is actually going to have longevity, that is going to work, that's going to last. And, you know, that's really what science is about, is finding that kind of truth. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. You can visit our website at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds or at inquiringshow.tumblr.com. And you can find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show, on Facebook at slash Inquiring Minds Podcast. And you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, your own big science ideas, or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. 
And this episode is sponsored by The Great Courses. The Great Courses brings the world's greatest professors and me to your fingertips. With over 500 courses on science, history, philosophy, fine arts, and more, The Great Courses are available on digital download and streaming or DVD and CD. For a limited time only, The Great Courses is giving our listeners an offer of 80% off the original price of my own course called 12 Essential Scientific Concepts. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds to find out more. That's thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds. And this episode is sponsored by Harry's.com. Harry's is less than two years old and is already disrupting the shaving industry, offering a better shaving experience at better value than giants like Schick and Gillette. And Harry's will give first-time customers $5 off if you go to harrys.com and use coupon code inquiringminds. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S dot com, coupon code inquiringminds. Inquiring Minds is produced by amateur particle physicist Adam Isaac in cooperation with the Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration in partnership with The Atlantic, the Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, Mother Jones, Slate, Wired, and The Huffington Post. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis. You can find me on Twitter at Indre This. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Quiche. See you next week. I'm Cindy Lauper. My psoriasis was all over, even on my scalp, which may mean four times the risk for psoriatic arthritis. But Cosentix works on both. Cosentix secukinumab is prescribed for adults with moderate to severe plaque psoriasis 300 milligram dose and adults with active psoriatic arthritis 150 milligram dose. Don't use if you're allergic to Cosentix. Before starting, get checked for TB. Serious allergic reactions, severe skin reactions that look like eczema, and an increased risk of infections, some fatal, have occurred. Cosentix may lower ability to fight infections, so tell your doctor if you have an infection or symptoms like fevers, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough, had a vaccine or plan to, or if IBD symptoms develop or worsen. Learn more at Cosentix.com or one. 1- 844 Cosentix. Ask your doctor about Cosentix.